If you have your Bibles, go to Daniel chapter 7. If you're new here this morning, my name's Tim. I'm one of the pastors here at GT. We're so privileged and honored that you would join and worship with us in this gathering. And over the last seven weeks now, we have been in a series called Resilient Faith, where we have been going through the book of Daniel and really just looking at what does it mean to live in a resilient faith in the midst of a hostile culture? That this story is about the children of Israel who have been judged by God. They've been taken away and led into captivity, into Babylonian exile. And now they are having to learn what it means to walk out their faith in the midst of an environment that is very antagonistic, very hostile towards their God. And so in Daniel, the book of Daniel, chapters 1 through 6, are essentially about the life of the young Daniel as he continues to grow up in Babylon and the influence that he gains through his faithfulness, through his integrity, through his steadfastness in his life. And so chapters one through six really are just a summary about that life. Now, starting this morning and then next week, we're gonna be looking at chapters seven, eight, and nine, and then next week, 10, 11, and 12. So we should be out of here by 3.30 today and uh, we'll at least get to dinner on time. But this is where the transition happens in the book of Daniel. That in chapters 1 through 6, it looks at the life of Daniel. And in chapters 7 through 12, it begins to look at what's called the dreams and the visions of Daniel. And I have to acknowledge that these visions that Daniel have, if you don't know what you're reading or how to read it, it can be very confusing at times. It's kind of like someone who's never read the Bible before. If they go to the book of Revelation and they read about all these crazy beasts and these empires and these things happening in the world, uh, it can be very confusing and sometimes a little even disheartening. Now, in chapter 7 through 12, these chapters deal with the theological realm called eschatology. And I want to say this. I'm going to have to bore you for a bit before we get to some good practical takeaways, all right? So if you like being bored, get excited about being bored. If you don't like being bored, uh, stay with me for a couple moments because we'll get to some good practical takeaways. Uh, but we have to do this well. And I believe that the church is an intelligent people, that we as the body of Christ have the spirit of Christ inside of us and so we can know the mind of Christ, amen? And so chapters 7 through 12 deal with this theological realm called eschatology and that word all it means is simply this the study of final things maybe you've heard it said like this before end times events so often when things begin to happen in the world like wars and plagues and disease and famine and great poverty and just riots and uneasiness in government Many times the church begins to think about these end time events or the, the study of, of final things. Now, throughout church history, there have been four major views when it comes to studying eschatology. And this is important because many times we don't understand in the North American church that there have been many ways that people have studied and looked at the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation for 2,000 plus years now. The first view is that is, uh, it's called futurism. This is probably the most popular and common view. This is probably the most popular view that most of us have understood. And it's the idea that biblical prophecy is uh, all yet to come. Now, these are general summaries. You can look these up later. There's a lot of nuance within each and every one of these views. But just some general summaries. Futurism is all biblical prophecy is yet to come. Historicism is all biblical prophecy is fulfilled throughout church history. There's a view called preterism, that is all biblical prophecy 
is fulfilled in the first century, uh, really leading up to 70 AD and the destruction of the temple under the Roman Empire and under Titus. And then there's this view called idealism, which is all biblical prophecy is symbolic of types of things to come in every generation. Now, in the book of Daniel, chapter 7 through 12, it's written in these visions in this form of literature known as apocalyptic literature. This would actually become a very popular type of writing uh, from the time of the exile leading up into the Gospels in the first century. And when it comes to apocalyptic literature, we must note that it was a very specific genre of writing in which it described dreams and visions. Uh, both the language and the imagery were very symbolic and extremely cryptic. Numbers, you see this all throughout apocalyptic literature, and we'll see it in the text here today. Numbers are often used as symbols or representative of something, and it was meant to unveil, reveal, and often dismantle structures or systems. In fact, I would propose that's what the majority of the book of Revelation is about. It's meant to expose or to reveal systems and structures. It was not so much code to predict literal future events, meaning timelines, but rather it was more to predict the type of things to come. And that's important that Apocalyptic literature from what's called Second Temple Judaism after they come out of exile into the time of the Gospels, it was not so much about code to predict literal timeline events, though that is involved in there, but it was more about these are the types of things to come. These are what you can expect to come in the world. And then in apocalyptic literature, there was this constant realm of being in the earthly realm in the vision but then also caught up into this heavenly realm. So you see this in the book of Revelation where John, when he's writing, he's saying, and suddenly I was caught up. We see this also here in Daniel chapter seven. There's this earthly realm to the vision, what he's seeing in the natural, but then there's this heavenly realm that he's caught up into, and he begins to see that though things are happening in the earth, there is also this supernatural spiritual realm that is going on, all right? And so it's important that we understand that when it comes to apocalyptic literature. Now, if you remember back to Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream where he sees a statue that has four different parts to the statue. And it's the prophet Daniel who actually gives the interpretation of the dream and what the statue means. And that the statue is significant of four different kingdoms that are going to come. The first kingdom is that of Babylon, and it represents Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. But then quickly, there's this other realm to the statue that uh, signifies the Medo-Persian Empire, and then there's the Greek Empire, and then the Roman Empire after it. And then in the midst of the Roman Empire, there is this final kingdom that is established because there is one who comes to establish an eternal kingdom. And the, the importance of that dream is that it's God saying to Nebuchadnezzar that your kingdom is great and powerful, but it is in fact limited. Its days are numbered, that kingdoms will always rise and kingdoms will always fall, but it's only the kingdom of God that will remain for eternity. And so when it comes to this idea of eschatology, and it comes to this realm of Jewish eschatology, if you go to the next slide here, we have to understand it in this way that we live in what's called this present age. And the present age was always significant of Satan's rule and reign. It's the earthly realm that every single one of us live in. But then there's also this realm of the heavenly realm of the age to come. 
And so for Jewish or Hebrew eschatology, uh, from the time of Daniel, really into the uh, post-exile, into the uh, time of silence in the Maccabean days, into the time of the Gospels, there was this anticipation that there was coming a point when God was going to break into time, space, and history and send his Messiah who would usher in the age to come, the heavenly realm. And so there was great hope around this. When, when Nebuchadnezzar had the dream in Daniel chapter 2, it was a messianic promise. There is a Messiah coming. There is a person coming that is sent by God to usher in the rule and reign of God, the age to come. And so for Jewish eschatology, and many of our Jewish brothers and sisters today, they still think in this framework. We live in this present age, and they're still looking and waiting and anticipating for the Messiah to come. You understand so far? Are you bored yet? All right, it only gets better in this regard. All right, here we go. So in Daniel chapter seven, let's stand for the reading of God's word. What happens is, is that Daniel begins to tell of several visions and dreams he has had over the course of being in exile here in Babylon. And in verse one, it says this, in the year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and the four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. This is the word of the Lord. We may be seated here today. Now in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel through this vision is revealed about these four beasts. Now we must understand that the beast in, in biblical language was always connected to human leadership that is void of godly direction. Human leadership that is void of, of godly authority. That when humans are left to their own uh, will, to their own desires, and they try to lead in such a way that they do not allow the authority of God to be involved, it leads to humans literally becoming beasts. This is what we see all throughout the biblical language, that the beast is always connected to human leadership that is void of godly authority. And so in Daniel chapter 7, he sees these four beasts. There's the lion with the eagle's wings. This, is, according to Jeremiah, is in fact Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian Empire. It's a reiteration of what Nebuchadnezzar saw at Daniel chapter 2. Then there's this bear, it's the Persian Empire. Then there's a leopard with four wings and four heads, which is significant of the Greek Empire, really under Alexander the Great and the four regions that he set up under the Greco world. And then finally, the ten horns and iron teeth is significant of the Roman Empire. Now, in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has revealed all these things that are happening in the natural world that is happening now, but also what is about to happen very soon. Once again, it's just reiterating what Nebuchadnezzar saw in Daniel chapter 2, that there's four empires that are coming, and they will be led by beast-like figures, human leadership without godly authority. Everyone say that, human leadership without godly authority. Now, in Daniel chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, he has another vision, and it says this. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me. Daniel, after that which appeared to me at first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, 
which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal, and I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. And it had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher, higher one came up last. And then I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward, and no beast could stand before him. And there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. And as I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between the eyes. And he came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal. And he ran at him in his powerful wrath. And so in Daniel chapter 8, there are now two beasts that are introduced. And it sounds like Daniel's been chewing on some peyote or something like that. I understand. But he's actually experiencing a very supernatural event. And so in this vision, he sees these two beasts, a, a ram and a goat. Now, most scholars and most historians believe that when it comes to the ram with two horns, it's signifying Persia that it speaks of the, the two kings of me, uh, the media Persian Empire that essentially overthrew Babylon and expanded its kingdom to the north, the west, and the east. And the second character, the second beast that Daniel sees in chapter 8, most historians and most theologians believe that the goat with four horns actually speaks of Alexander the Great and the Greco world. Alexander the Great um, was a young general uh, military leader in, in, the, in the Greek army who literally at 26 had conquered the known world. In 334 BC, Alexander's army of 35,000 men plunged through the Granacus River and attacked Darius's empire of 100,000 footmen and 10,000 horsemen, killing 20,000 Persian soldiers at a loss of only about 100 Greek soldiers. Like this was a pretty powerful military expedition here. Um, there was complete victory that was assured in 331 BC. And it's believed by most historians and theologians that the four horns became the four regions of the Greek empire. Now, once again, going back to the four views of eschatology, depending how one has been taught to read scripture according to those views, they will read these visions in different ways. They will see things in these visions in different types of ways. They will either see that it's all about future, they will either see that it's all about history being fulfilled throughout the church age, or they will see it as already fulfilled in the first century, or they will see it as the types of things to come. I would actually propose to you that all four are actually correct that all four are a proper way to read eschatology. That eschatology always involves all those different components. Now when it comes to this little horn, many theologians and historians believe that it's speaking of Antiochus. Anybody ever heard of Antiochus before? Antiochus, uh, he emerged out of the Syrian region. He rose to power in 175 BC. And essentially Antiochus was a Greek leader that believed he was God. He believed himself to be deity. In fact, one commentator in speaking of him says in, in Jerusalem, after the temple has been built after the exile, he replaced the high priest with a man of his own choosing, and then he invaded Egypt. And while there, a rumor of his death circulated among the Jews. 
And efforts were made to reinstate the genuine high priest. Antiochus accused the people of rebellion, savagely attacked and sacked Jerusalem, and executed tens of thousands of its inhabitants. 40,000 apparently dying within a space of 10 days, while others were taken captive. And he entered into the Holy of Holies in the temple. He sacrificed a pig on the altar of burnt offering, thus defiling the temple precincts. And he took the sacred furniture and established a traitor, Menelaus, as the high priest. And so the temple was left without daily sacrifices and religious practices were non-existent. And a statue of Zeus was placed in the temple and human sacrifices were made in the temple. In fact, most historians and theologians would say that this is actually the abomination of desolation that Daniel sees in his vision in Daniel chapter 9. Now, as you read on in Daniel chapter 8, what we see is this interesting note about these types of beasts and leaders. In Daniel chapter 8, verses 24 and 25, in speaking of this beast, these types of beasts that are to come, it says this, his power shall be great, but not by his own power. And what Daniel is seeing in this vision is that there are all these human leaders that are going to rise and bring in new types of empires. And every single evil beast, evil empire, is going to be able to accomplish more evil than the previous empire but note that it's not just about their own power, but they're actually being motivated. They're being, uh, they're being guided by a different power. And that different power is the spirit of this age. That anytime human leadership tries to lead without godly authority, it does in fact become satanic. That's what, that's what Daniel is seeing here in this vision. Anytime human leadership tries to lead without godly authority, over time, it eventually becomes satanic. It's not that we go around saying that every leader in the world that's not a Christian is satanic, but eventually it becomes satanic. It becomes evil. It's being led by a different power. And so in this vision, what Daniel sees is that with every empire, they're all rooted and founded in evil, but with every empire, it increases in the ability to accomplish evil. It's like those old infomercials that we used to see, but wait, there's more. Remember that? But wait, there's more. What Daniel is seeing here, but wait, it gets worse. With every succeeding empire that is devoid of godly authority, it always gets more and more and more Evil. This is what he is seeing in this vision, but wait, it gets worse. And so kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, but with every kingdom, the ability to reap havoc, especially on the people of God, increases from generation to generation to generation. What they did in their time, in Daniel's time, what the Roman Empire did in the first century, which was terrible things, you think about the ability of warfare today and what we saw in World War I and World War II, and it's the, the terrible evil that existed in the earth because of humanity's empires that they build devoid of godly authority. And I know now we're seeing some of what we're seeing in the Ukraine and the terrible tragedies there, uh, but I would propose actually the greatest uh, weapons of mass destruction that exists in the 21st century aren't necessarily to do with nuclear power or, or military power, but it has to do with the digital age that we live in. 
that there is so much evil that is happening through human leadership devoid of godly authority just through this device here. It is literally reaping havoc on human beings every single hour of every day. And so this is what Daniel essentially has solved. He, he has seen that, that wait, it always gets worse. Now in Daniel chapter nine, we're introduced to this idea called the 70 weeks. We're skipping through these chapters quickly, but hopefully you're not quite so bored yet, all right? Stay with me. In Daniel chapter nine, we're introduced to this idea of what's called the 70 weeks, where he's given once again a promise through a vision that starts off through his study of scripture. And we pick it up here in verse one, where it says, in the first year of Darius, the son of Asuras, I think I said that right, by the descent of Mede, who was king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the book the number of years that according to the word of the Lord, to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, Turn aside, turning aside from your commandments and rules. And so here in Daniel chapter nine, he has come into an understanding through the writings of the prophet Jeremiah of the duration of the exile, and he recognizes that the fulfillment of years is quickly approaches. Most theologians believe that this is about 67 years now, 67 to 68 years that the children of Israel have been in exile. And Daniel, through his study, is encouraged by the words of Jeremiah that this exile is going to last for about 70 years. And so he enters into what the Jewish people call a toda. And a toda is simply this. It's the petitioner acknowledges God's glory and grace in his actions towards his people and confesses the sin of the people in having broken covenant and pleads for its renewal. And so we see here in this Torah that Daniel, he responds to the promise that he has found in Jeremiah. Number one, he responds by turning to God. He turns toward God. He's acknowledging the sovereignty and the authority and the power of God. Secondly, he reminds God of the covenant that he has made with his people. And remember, you've heard me say this before, God is a covenant-keeping God even when we are not faithful to keep the covenant. The good news of the gospel is not in our ability to keep the covenant. The good news of the gospel is that God keeps the covenant perfectly. And he kept it through his son, Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, in this Torah, Daniel, he repents of his sin and also the sin of his people. Because sin in the Old Testament was always individual as well as corporate. We can't read the Old Testament scriptures and not see this realm of both individual sin as well as corporate, collective, and often systemic sin. And so in exile, God's heart is that his people would repent of sin, they would turn towards being his people again, and as you've heard me say so many times before, that the judgments of God are always far more restorative than they ever are retributive. 
So Daniel, he turns to God. He reminds God of the covenant. He repents of his sin and the sin of the people. And then he gets excited because he gets full of expectation about the deliverance that is about to come. But wait, it gets worse. Daniel thinks, well, we've been in this for 67 years now. So the end of this exile is about to happen. What, what he's going to see and have revealed through an angel is that actually you may come out of Babylonian exile, but you're going to be in this exile for quite some time. Because there will be more beasts that rise up and try to dominate the people of God. And so we read about it in verse 24 and 27 in Daniel 9, where the angel reveals to Daniel that 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build, restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end shall come with a flood. And to the end, there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Now, in biblical language, weeks were always a reference to years. And so when we read about these 70 weeks where the angel comes and says, it's not just about 70 years, but it's going to be like 70 times 7. So essentially, it's going to be like 490 weeks. It's going to be like 490 years that you are experiencing this type of evil leadership dominating the people of God. What the angel is revealing to Daniel is you may come out of Babylon, you may go back to Jerusalem, but you're not going to actually be free. It's like the children of Israel came out of Egypt, but Egypt didn't necessarily come out of them. You're going to think you're free, but there's going to be evil beasts and evil rulers and leaders that are actually trying to dominate you. Now, according to that lens of eschatology, we can read this and say, well, it's chronological or it's literal, historical. We can say it's theological or it's symbolic. We must note that the, word, the number seven all throughout Scripture is actually symbolic of perfection, completion, rest, and Sabbath. And 70 years in Scripture is usually connected all throughout Scripture of a time of desolation followed by a visitation from God. All throughout Scripture, seven speaks of perfection, completion. 70 years speaks of a time of desolation, of hardship, followed by a visitation from God. Stay with me. We're going to get to the landing strip at some point here, all right? I see your mind turning all over the place, and it's beautiful. I love it. Now, in the 70 weeks of Daniel 9, there's a six-fold purpose that is revealed. Number one, we see that the 70 weeks are given so that they may finish and restrain transgression, that God may put an end to sin, that God may atone for iniquity, 
that God may bring in everlasting righteousness, that God may seal both vision and prophet, and ultimately that God would anoint a most holy place. Now in this sixfold purpose, once again, back to those lenses of interpretation, depending how you study or read eschatology, you will see the 70 weeks differently. For some, they say that the 70 weeks is leading up to the time of Antiochus, that he is the, the Antichrist before the first coming of Jesus, that he is the one who committed the desolation, the, the abomination of desolation in the temple by sacrificing the pig. Others, they see it as fulfilled with the destruction of the temple when the Roman armies with the, uh, the, the emblem of Caesar marched into the temple and defiled the temple in 70 AD and they destroyed it. They wiped out 1.2 million Jews in a matter of three to four months. Women were literally cannibalizing their children. Hence why Jesus said in Matthew 24, women will wish they, they had never given birth to their children. It was horrific things that happened. They did away with all the, the tribes of the children of Israel. They did away with the ability to sacrifice and worship according to the old covenant age. And so often preterists, they will see that as the fulfillment of the 70 weeks. And many futurists will see it as something that is yet to come before the rapture, before the second coming of Christ. And so all these different modes of interpretation see this differently. And there have been different ways of reading this throughout church history. But I want to say this. In a sense, they're actually all right. In a sense, they're all right. Remember I said that all four views actually have good method of interpretation. In a sense, they're all right. That in many ways, Antiochus was a fulfillment of what Daniel was seeing. In many ways, the Roman Empire was a fulfillment of what was seen in Daniel chapter 9. And in many ways, I would propose that kingdoms that are led by human beasts continue to grow evil even today, and there will be one final one that comes and tries to harm the people of God and tries to get the people of God to bow in allegiance to their ways above the ways of Jerusalem, the ways of the city of God that we've been learning about. So in some sense, they're all right, or at least they are partially right. But here's what I want to propose to you here this morning, that the 70 weeks is actually more about. More than all these different predictions that people try to make about the second coming of Christ, or perilous times, or end times. Actually, I believe that the 70 weeks connects to something bigger than all those things. And it connects to what was known for the Jewish people as the year of Jubilee. And what we're going to see here is that it's really the year of Jubilee times 10. And so in Leviticus chapter 25, verses 8 through 12, it speaks of this idea of Jubilee where it says this, you shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Sound familiar? Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. And on the, day of the, on the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. And it shall be a jubilee for you. 
when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself nor gather the grapes from the undressed vine for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. And so Daniel, we must see this, Daniel, as a well-studied Hebrew boy, would have obviously picked up on the significance of the 70 times 70 prophecy that Gabriel was given. That he was making the connection to Israel's deliverance a connection with Israel's jubilee. Except this time, 490, it would literally be jubilee times 10, and 10 speaking of the finality of God's redemptive plan and redemptive history found in Christ the Messiah. In Isaiah chapter 61, the prophet, 700 years prior to the coming of Jesus, gave these prophetic words. And Jesus, in Luke 4, he took these words and he made the announcement as he was getting ready to embark on his ministry. And he said, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. The announcement here in Isaiah is the announcement of Jubilee. And so this vision that is given for Daniel, he would have immediately connected it to the idea of we're going to experience some real difficult hardship and desolation and adversity. We're going to come out of Babylon, but it's not going to feel like we're really free. We're going to be experience other beasts that come, other evil empires that rise and fall, and we're going to be oppressed. But there is a day of jubilee that is coming when God is going to break into time, space, and history and liberate his people once and for all. And so in Daniel 7 and 8, 8 and 9, there's all these times where he's caught up in the earthly realm and he's seeing all that is happening in the world, both now and the future, and he's disturbed by it. He's agitated by it. He's, he's frustrated by it. But then, all of a sudden, he's caught up into the throne room of heaven. And he sees God seated at the throne. And he sees one like the Son of Man who is given all dominion and authority over everything that is happening in the earth. We see it in Daniel 7, 26 and 27. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times and a half time. Usually connected to the idea of three and a half, which speaks of partial fulfillment. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. It's speaking of this final empire that Daniel sees. And then verse 27 says, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. And his kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions shall serve and obey him. And so we have, we have to see this. Daniel is awakened to the brutal reality of what is happening in the natural realm. It disturbs him. It frustrates him. It frightens him at times. 
And then he is invited up to come up here, just like John in Revelation. But I want you to see, Daniel, when you remove yourself from all that is happening in the earthly realm and you get caught up with what is happening in the heavenly realm, what you see is an all-powerful God who is never thrown off guard by any of the evil empires that exist in the earth. It's, it's powerful imagery that we see here. We see Jesus, the Son of God, who ultimately has all dominion and authority. So if you go to the next chart here, when it comes to Christian eschatology, we must see this. That like Jewish eschatology, there's this realm of the present age. And there's this time where all these empires are rising and falling and committing evil. But we're not waiting, waiting for the first coming of Messiah in Christian eschatology because we believe that over 2,000 years ago, Messiah did come. He came at the cross at Calvary. He died on the cross at Calvary. He died a martyr's death. And in his death, he ultimately destroyed the works of the devil and destroyed the spirit of the present age. And he ushered in the age to come at the cross 2,000 years ago. And so we live in this tension, you hear me talk about all the time, of this already and not yet of the kingdom of God. It's almost like that three times, times and a half type of idea, that three and a half, that it's been partially fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come, but it hasn't come in its fullness. It's come partially, but it will only increase until his second coming and the second coming of Jesus, the rapture of the church, and the full ushering in of the age to come and the millennial reign of Jesus. But in this time that we live, in the time between the times, this already not yet tension, we will experience hardship. We will continue to see evil empires rise and fall. I believe we will continue to see evil done in horrible, drastic, horrific ways. And so in some sense, even now, even post-cross, in some sense, but wait, it gets worse. But in the heavenly sense, but wait, it gets better. Oh, come on. <laughs> yes, in, in, the, in the natural sense, if we're only consumed by all that is happening in the earthly realm, but wait, it gets worse. But beloved, there's an invitation for the people of God to come up here, to come up now, to begin to see what is happening in the heavenly realm because Jewish eschatology always had far more to do with what God was about to do than anything that mankind was doing. Hello. And so many times, even we as the church of Jesus Christ, we get so consumed by all that is happening in the world, in the natural realm, and all, do you realize what is happening on the globalist perspective? Do you realize the wars and the famines and the desolation? Do you, do you realize all the injustice in the world? Yeah, it's, it's there, and it's very real, and it's very dark, and in that sense, but wait, it gets worse. But do you not understand, there's an invitation for us to be caught up into the throne room of heaven. Every time we worship, we gather together, we're, we're, we're offered an opportunity to be caught up in the throne room of heaven. To turn our eyes towards Jesus. To look full in his wonderful face. And see that the kingdom has come 
and it's only increasing. Evil is increasing, but so is the kingdom of God. And so, but wait, it gets worse, but wait, it gets better for the people of God. It gets hard and difficult in the natural realm. But we are called to be a people that live and function in the spirit of the age to come. We are called to be a people that are consumed with the kingdom age to come. And so that no matter what is happening down here, we can look and we can say, Jesus, you're still king. Jesus, you're still Lord. Jesus, you still have all dominion, power, and authority. And so I, I, want, I want us to get this here this morning. I, I want to talk to some people this morning that you've been going through some stuff in your life. You've been going through some hardship. You've been going through some difficulty. You felt like you were in exile and you thought it was going to be seven days. You thought it was going to be seven weeks. And now you feel like that 70 weeks has turned into 70 weeks. And you thought, well, it's going to get over soon. But now that 70 weeks has feel like 490 years. Anybody identify with that here this morning? You feel like you've been stuck in this moment of exile where it's just difficult and hard and everything around you is collapsing and falling down in the natural. Your children are backsliding. Your marriage is falling apart. Your finances are an absolute mess. You lost your job. You feel like you're in the worst of the worst. And if you get consumed by all that is happening in the natural, yes, it only gets worse. But I say there's an invitation for you here this morning to come up here, to get caught up into the heavenly realm and begin to see that, wait, it actually will get better. There's a jubilee promise for the people of God to be liberated from all suffering, to be liberated from all hardship, to be liberated from the oppression of evil. I'm not just trying to hype you up. If you catch this, this will change your life. I believe it. It doesn't mean it'll get easy. Doesn't mean you still won't go through some things, but in the midst of going through some things, I'm caught up in the heavenly realm. I'm caught up in the heavenly realm. And in the heavenly realm, Jesus is seated on the throne. He is still Lord. He is still all powerful. Amen? So I want us to stand to our feet here today. And I, I just feel this strong sense in my spirit that we just need to break out in radical worship in this moment. Like you've been going through some stuff. You feel like you've been in exile for far too long. I want to encourage you to respond like the Toda of Daniel, where you just say, God, I'm turning my attention towards you. I'm reminding you of the covenant that you made with me as a child of God. I'm repenting of sin. And I'm going to praise and worship and adore you. And it doesn't matter what I'm going through in the natural realm here down on earth. I'm going to be one who is fixated on Jesus no matter what comes my way. Because he holds the keys of authority in all things. Amen. So I just want you right now, just begin to praise God. Begin to worship God, even in your seat. Just begin to lift your voice all across this place. I believe there's a year of jubilee experience coming for us as the people of God. There's been a time of desolation. There's been a time of hardship. It's been a long season, but there's a breakthrough moment coming in our lives as the people of God. Crisis precedes renewal. Crisis precedes revival. We've been going through some stuff, but there's a breakthrough coming. Turn your eyes to Jesus this morning. Turn your gaze towards Jesus this morning. Come up here. 
see what is happening in the heavenly realm. See what is happening, that God is not thrown off guard. God is not distracted by anything that is happening in the world. We worship you, Jesus. We honor you, Jesus. We magnify your name, Jesus. We glorify your name, Jesus, in this place. Release your breakthrough in this place. Release the spirit of jubilee over this house today. Release the spirit of jubilee in this place today. Heal marriages in Jesus' name. Heal marriages in Jesus' name. Heal physical bodies in Jesus' name. Restore relationships in Jesus' name. Prodigal sons and daughters coming home in the name of Jesus. This is the year of Jubilee for the people of God. We felt like we've been in exile, but there's a time of coming out. There's a time of coming out. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. through some things that you feel like you just need help and experiencing breakthrough and healing we have an incredible prayer team that would love to spend some time with you just praying up here now all week not all week sorry all series I've been saying that this book of Daniel reveals this idea of allegiance over and over again where does your allegiance lie do you identify with the city of evil and destruction? Or do you identify with the city of God? And so this morning, I would propose to you here today that one of the greatest ways for you to identify with the city of God is to not allow yourself to be consumed with the city of evil down here. And the media, and everything that is happening in the world is fighting for your attention. It doesn't mean that you're just ignorant of it or that you just act like it's not real. No, it's, it's very real. We know it's real. But in the midst of feeling overwhelmed by all that is real and happening down here, when you feel that sense of anxiousness and worry and things rising up, would you respond in worship? Would you respond in prayer? 
And when you respond in worship and prayer, you're being caught up into the throne room of Jesus. And it begins to put things in perspective. Oh wait, yeah, you're, you're still in control. Oh wait, you're still sovereign. Oh wait, you're still good. Oh wait, you're still accomplishing your purposes even when I don't feel it or sense it. You're still doing your purpose and plan in the earth. And so that's one of the greatest ways for you to remain in that allegiance to the kingdom of Jesus. So every time I feel overwhelmed or what is going on in the world, I begin to worship Jesus. I begin to fix my eyes on Jesus. And I believe it gives us a new perspective, a heavenly perspective. Amen? So I bless you. Go in the power and strength of the might. Thank you for being bored for quite a while there. But I, I believe it's important we understand that because there's something beautiful and power in there. There's, there's a jubilee for the people of God. And it's not just about a chronological timeline. It's about the access we have as the children of God. There's breakthrough coming after a time of hardship and desolation. He is true to His Word even when we are not true. Amen. Bless you. Have an incredible week. If you want prayer, come on up.